May 2nd, 2021. Very important, very unique day in history. It's a day that many probably will not even remember. That is, unless it is your birthday or anniversary, something like that. I want you to rewind with me in history. Just two basic dates. One date in particular, May 2nd, 1945. Of course, 1945, that year, should ring something with you, resonate. World War II. The Battle of Berlin ends as Soviet army takes Berlin and General Veltling surrenders. Fast forward just a few years, May 2nd. 2011 to this day, 10 years ago, Osama bin Laden, the mastermind behind the September 11th attacks, is is killed by special forces in, in Pakistan. And there's many others that are that are littered throughout history, May 2nd. But today is another special day. It is a special day on the calendar. As far as I know, there are no world summits that are meeting now on Sunday, even though they probably would not recognize the Lord's Day. There are no peace negotiations, as far as I know, no life-changing or life-altering events that are taking place today that I am aware of. What is happening today that is so special? The short answer to this might not shock you. In fact, you might say, well, Lord, if you would have told me that, preacher. The short answer is this. Think intently. The Lord woke you up from your sleep. He brought you to this place to hear His Word and to worship Him. You might say, well, preacher, it's just another day. What makes this day so special? And if you thought that, this next phrase is hopefully no offense to you. You might have said, well, pastor, this is just another ordinary day. What makes it so special? But in that response, there is the core of the problem we have today. Is we do not appreciate the day that is given to us by God. We live in this day as if we are promised tomorrow, and then we are shocked when we hear of friends and family members who don't make the next day. I remember hearing the words of theologian Clint Eastwood. (laughs) As he said, tomorrow is promised to no one. And by the way, those of you who don't know who Clint Eastwood is, dirty hair, he is not a theologian. (laughs) But he said, tomorrow is promised to no one. And I think, have a sneaking suspicion that Clint Eastwood heard something from the Apostle James or someone who had been reading the Apostle James in chapter 4, verse 13 and 14 that said, Come now, you who say tomorrow or today we shall go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Then verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then you vanish. So here today, and gone tomorrow. So yes, today is a unique day. Today is a special day. 
It is a very special day to be joined with the saints of the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit under the work of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to worship Him together. So with that introduction, I'll ask you if you will stand with me again as we read the word of the Lord for today, beginning at verse 35, Mark chapter 10, with a sermon that I simply pose as a question, can you bear the cup? Let's pray, or let's read the word. I've got to read it first. James and John, the son of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on, at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism in which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, Then the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or on my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the other ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and, and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great amongst you must be your servant. Whoever would be first amongst you must be a slave to all. For even, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and then to give his life as a ransom for many. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word, and that word to our heart and mind. You may be seated. It was in last week's assessment of Mark 10 but Jesus had forecasted his death in what I consider to be a five-point framework. Jesus' five steps to victory. First, Jesus said that he would be handed over to the religious leaders. He would be handed over to Rome. He would be handed over to die. Then he would be mocked. Then he would be spit upon. Progressively getting worse, he would be flogged or beaten we went through that ordeal of what it would have looked like for a, for a person to be under a Roman beating, and it's not a pretty picture. And then he would be killed. But then the victory is found, and on the third day he will rise again. And I would imagine the disciples, as they are hearing this, they thought that Jesus spoke a little out of his mind. And that is a phrase that is used in Scripture to very nicely say that they thought that Jesus was a bit crazy. After hearing this, they would have no doubt thought that he was speaking something out of his mind. In fact, his family members thought that of him anyway. But the outline for the chapter is as such. Jesus teaches on divorce and marriage and the rightful place for children. A balance, if you will. A young rich man comes with the caravan who also had the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes uh, in tow and he approaches the Lord Jesus in this caravan of people and he asks him, how can I have eternal life? 
Jesus tells the man to sell all that he has, sell it all, and then follow me. Well, we know, the narrative says, that the man could not sell all that he had because on the throne of his heart set his possessions and his riches. His riches were his God, and he could not throw down that idol. But as the young rich man is leaving, Jesus turns to his disciples, and he uses this to teach. He teaches on his death and his resurrection. And upon hearing this forecasted prophecy, the disciples respond. And in their response, they ask a question of Jesus, which will be the theme of this sermon with the question, can you bear the cup? The way that Jesus answers the disciples' dilemma that they have set before the Lord Jesus is not what you think. The answer might not be what you expect. And today that we live in, you would think that uh, Christ followers, there's this misconception that we have our best life now and that everything's a bed of roses, a, a, uh, a, a road paved with gold, uh, and so forth and so on, that there's no suffering. And, and by the way, that is not what Jesus taught. And so the answer is not exactly what you might expect it to be. I firmly believe that the Lord does not... Listen to me on this one. Listen to me on this point. The Lord doesn't grant some of our prayers because we ask them with wrong motives. We ask them with wrong motives. Or our answer, the answer does not come because to grant our prayers would cause more harm than good. Think about that for a Sunday morning reflection in the Word. Think about that as you go home today. Sometimes the reason that God does not grant our requests, I said sometimes, is because it is not good for our well-being or our growth in Him. You ever had a, a prayer that didn't seem to be answered? By the way, God answers every prayer. As the old saying is, God doesn't answer, it, it, God answers every prayer. It might not be the way that we want it to be. In fact, James chapter 4, verse 3 says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Now, the tone that the Lord Jesus here is almost like saying, You really don't know what you're asking. In fact, verse 35, uh, the sons of Zebedee came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus says to them, What do you want me to do for you? For you, And they said, grant us to set one on your right and one on your left in glory. Now this narrative is so important, and sometimes we gloss over it, but it's so important that even Matthew and Luke employed this event in their gospel account. So it must be very memorable and a teachable moment. On first reading, one might be inclined to think that the disciples did not understand the Old Testament understanding of Messiah. And this, this is a very well-known fact. The Hebrews were looking for a political Messiah, a political Savior. Hence the request of, let us sit by your side, one on the right and one on the left. But Jesus says, you will be my, by my side, but not like you think. In fact, you will partake of the same cup of my suffering. 
So here are two brothers. They're trying to get Jesus to commit to their desires before they even ask of him. If you'll notice in Matthew's gospel, the mother is the one who initiates it. In fact, it is the two brothers, I would imagine, that put mom up to approaching Jesus. Won't you go to, go to the Lord and, and, ask, and ask of him? In fact, Matthew 20, 20 says this, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And this is what she would ask of him. But Christ in, insists upon their telling him the thing that they wanted before he would give them any guarantee, even though the sovereign Lord knew what they wanted. So let's pause there for a side note, okay? Because it's the question, what do you want what do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asks. So, so let's pause there for a side note. This question, I believe, must be reversed. What do you think? I believe this question needs to be reversed. And I know that we serve a loving, passionate, long-suffering Savior. And I'm glad for that. But see, my overly speculating mind sometimes asks this. Do you think the Lord gets tired of our endless, passionless, ill-placed requests? Lord, it's me again. Lord, it's me again. I'm glad we serve a God who listens to Lord, it's me again. I'm thankful that our Lord listens to our request, and I'm thankful for that. But when was the last time that you asked, Lord, what do you want me to do for you? See, we often treat the Lord as if he is a heavenly genie who's patiently waiting for us to rub the lamp so he can appear. What would you have me, Lord, do? Once Jesus says this to his disciples, they ask a very prideful, I think it's a prideful question. It is prideful. Which may be why the Lord ends this teaching with, the first amongst you will be a slave to all. Even though he would, referring to himself, who will be slave in his death. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking, verse 38. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized in my baptism? Are you able to drink for the cup and to be baptized the way that I am? See, Jesus has already been baptized at this point. Let's think for a moment. I believe Mark helps the reader to know this, that they did not understand the full scope of Messiah as Savior. He says to them, you do not know what you ask. He uses the cup and baptism as a symbol of his persecution and his death. He uses the cup in this, in this way, Matthew 14 and 36. We know, the, we know the narrative, hopefully we do, from Matthew 14, 36 in the, in the garden. And Jesus said this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you, uh, but remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Our loving Lord, see, here's the beautiful thing about this. Even though Jesus has every right to rebuke every single one of us in here. Because I got to admit, we are not always thinking rightly about God. He did not rebuke them sharply, but he used grace with them. 
The way to fellowship with Jesus is not sitting on his right or sitting on his left in ruling, but in surrender, in service, and suffering for his namesake. Can you bear that cup? In his surrender, in, in our surrender, in our service, and in our suffering? See, this is what's coming down the road. Remember, they're marching their way to Jerusalem. They're marching their way to Golgotha. This is a cup of persecution and death. Can you bear that cup? Now, there might be a day in this country where it would be against the law to meet in a place such as this, as it is in other countries today. There might be a day in this country where we would be expected to die for our faith. And I've asked myself this question, what would happen if all of a sudden I was preaching and some people bust down the doors and, and held me at gunpoint and many others? I, I wonder uh, what I would say, what I would do, and then I'm reminded that the Holy Spirit gives us power and boldness to be able to stand and say, I will not renounce Christ. He is my Lord. But I can't do it in my own power. Lord, I pray that day I would have the boldness to do that. Can you bear that cup? In the Old Testament passages, a cup would represent two sides. One would be joy and the other could be wrath. We see this through the pages of the New Testament as well. But in this particular case, it would be that of, of wrath. And persecution. And with the case of baptism, it would be understood as being immersed, because the word for baptism is always immersed, taken under, fully under. And by the way, that's why we're Baptists. Immersed in hardships, but then victory and peace comes through adversity. What do I learn from this or imply from the cup and baptism? What do I learn from Jesus and what Jesus asked them to bear and us sometimes? We learn this, that no one can do what Christ did. No one can suffer what Christ suffered on the cross. On the cross. And no one, no one can experience what Christ experienced on the cross. If it would be so, then you would have been able to do it yourself. No one can do what Christ did, so no one can suffer what he suffered. But this does not negate the fact that many do suffer for Christ today. And not only can no one suffer what Christ suffered, we are expected to have some relation with him in his suffering. And I believe sometimes the plight of the modern church today is that we have gotten too comfortable And then we learn that Christ's disciples must anticipate trials. Many have heard the name Charles Wesley, the Methodist movement. Charles Wesley, in his work entitled, Soldiers of, the, of Christ Arise, he wrote this. He said, Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on. Strong in the strength which God supplies, through his eternal son. So not only would I ask you, can you bear this cup? I would ask you, are you a soldier of Christ? Are you a soldier? Then rise up 
and expect to drink for his cup and stand in his truth. I would expect, unless God intervened, the trajectory of the modern church today, we have some trials down the road. In verse 39, and they said to Jesus, we are able to bear that cup. They answered the question. I'd almost say, yeah, that sounds good, Jesus. We're able. We can, we can drink of that cup and be baptized. Those are all things that, that seem to lend itself to worship. But then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism which I baptize, you will be baptized. And by the way, as the disciples will hear this teaching... We know that one Judas Iscariot would have ultimately taken his life, but we also know that the only one amongst them who would, who would survive would be John, the Apostle John. The rest would die a martyr's death. And the pages of church history is full of people standing for Jesus and dying for the cause of Christ who have drank from that cup and been baptized in that baptism. Then verse 40 says, But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it has for, been for those who it has been prepared. Now, Jesus is not negating his divinity. In fact, he is divine, all-knowing. But in this moment, in his humanity, he says, this is for God the Father to sanction. Who will sit by my right hand or, or to my left? So he's given prophecy. And many of the disciples, as we, have I mentioned earlier, were already, they have already tasted of this, of this cup in a martyr's death. History gives records of well-accounted evidences to the death of the disciples and many more Christ followers. I think of the early church father Polycarp and many others that have followed who had leapt for joy and counted it a privilege to die for the cause of Christ. The cup and baptism might look different for you today, but there is a cup and there is a baptism for you today. It might look like a word of ridicule from a friend because you are a Christ follower. Because you are a Christian. Maybe a word of, 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 uh, of criticism. It may be someone who even attacks the church and says, the church is full of hypocrites. By show of hands, how many have heard that? I love this response although I'm not endorsing hypocrisy in any way, mind you. I almost want to say, well, then come and join us. One more isn't going to hurt the crowd. But I think that would be too much of an endorsement for hypocrisy. Instead of being discipled and running from it. Regardless, Jesus said, you will suffer persecution. But can you bear that cup? Secondly, the truth of the ages. What is the truth of the ages? You know, we have this saying, the golden rule. You know, treat others as you would like to be treated. And there's many golden rules through the ages, by the way. And this is one of those, the truth of, of the ages. And, and what is this? Because this particular theme, this truth of the ages, is a theme that weaves through scriptures almost at every turn in the Bible. So what is this truth of the ages? The theme, of course, is one of humility. The theme, of course, is the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. In verse 41, the other ten had heard this engagement with, with the disciples, and the other ten had heard it, and, and they became angry. They become indignant, the Bible says, at James and John. 
And, and don't, you know, now think about that. Uh, we, don't have, we don't have jealousy in the local body today, do we? There's none of that that happens, does it? The language used to express this indignation is wrath. So we can say that they were wrathful when they heard it. We can say that uh, they were furious when they heard this exchange. Uh, they were very, very angry uh, as they heard this exchange. But it's not because that they thought that, hey man, you need to be a little bit more humble. It's not because they thought that James and John should be humbled. It's because they wanted the position for themselves. If human nature runs its course as it does in depravity, they would have wanted the position for themselves. Hey, how about us? We want to sit on the right hand or on the left. Hey, how about us? How about getting a disciple rotation going? But the peaceful and yet stern Lord Jesus called to them and he said to them, he didn't answer them straight, right, straight, straight forward. He used this to teach a tender and loving and compassionate lesson. Verse 42, he called to them and he said to them, You know that those rulers are considered rulers of, of the Gentiles. They lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. So you look at Rome. You look at the way they have their hierarchy. And they lord it over as, as like a tyrant. I love the tender tone that the Lord Jesus uh, uses here that Mark captures so well. What makes it compassionate? What makes this so tender? Because our Lord is not a lord or a king who is a tyrant that beats down his people. But is compassionate. Aren't you glad we serve a compassionate Jesus? Aren't you glad that we serve a compassionate and loving Loving Lord that is so gracious with us even when we fail. I want you to listen to this rendering in the International Standard Version. Jesus called his disciples and told them, You know that those who are recognized as, ruler, as rulers amongst the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their superiors act like tyrants over them. That's the way of the world. And if we are to be like Jesus, even in places of authority, then humility is key. Then he says to them, but it shall not be so amongst you. This is how the world operates. It shall not be amongst you, but whoever would be great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever be first amongst you must be slave to all. I've heard this phrase used, and of course it's not from the theologian uh, Clint Eastwood, by the way. I've heard this phrase used. I believe it could be a very biblical. Uh, biblical. I believe we can support this biblically. And the phrase goes as such. If one wants to be a good leader, then they must be a great servant. Can I say that again? If one expects to be a good leader, then they must learn to be a great servant. And that's the principle that Jesus is trying to teach them. He's trying to strip down their pride. He's trying to teach them amongst all this chaos and all that is going around that the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve. And if Christ is our example, then we come to serve and not seek to be served. But we live in a very 
service-oriented world, don't we? We live in a very service-oriented culture that in sometimes even invades the life and health of the church. But Jesus said he came to give his life and a ransom for many. And if the Son of Man came to serve, then <laughs> I believe there is an oughtness to that that we ought to serve as well. I want to camp right here for a moment in conclusion. Because Christ is our example of servanthood. What is our takeaway on Christ as servant? What do we learn of Christ as servant? See, James and John are kind of the footnote here. I mean, they were the two examples that are used to elevate and to show human pridefulness and, and, and depravity. But Jesus is, Jesus is the example. Jesus is the lesson. What do we take away on Christ as servant? What do we learn as we deal with one another in the life and health of the church as well? What do we do when other fellow servants of the Lord Jesus Christ are in ministry? What do we do? Well, we celebrate. We celebrate what God is doing. We celebrate 30, 40 years of ministry. We celebrate what the Lord has done through the ages. We encourage, we lift up, we serve. See, Jesus teaches us to empty ourselves of human or earthly greatness. I always goes back to this quote, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. And the essence of that is what is important through the ages is the gospel. He teaches to empty oneself of earthly greatness. And if Jesus is our example, then we must do so as well. And to be content with our life situations. I believe that this is a very difficult one for us. It's difficult for me sometimes to be content with life, to be content with what we have. We don't always have to keep up with the Joneses. We don't always have to keep up with, with somebody in the community. We don't always have to, to, to try to buy things to, to keep up with. So be content. I think Jesus teaches this. Be content and serve God, serve the Lord where He's got you. See, the child of God shouldn't have time to be in the trenches of the woe is me if they are in the ditches of the Great Commission. The Son of Man came to minister, and so we ought to as well. We also learn to be diligent in doing good for others. And in this community, that is a very prominent thing. To do good for our neighbors and to look out for one another and, and, and lend a helping hand. But I believe it also must be saturated with the gospel. People need to know why we do good works. We do good works because we love you in Jesus and we want you to know Him too. And if you know Him, we want you to grow in your faith. To do good works for His name's sake. To stoop to the place of a servant rather than a king. We also learn that Jesus gave his life for sinners, therefore teaches our lonely place as demonstrated by this amazing, compassionate Savior is to serve. I know you may have heard the name George Whitfield. I don't know if you have the, the great revival, the great awakenings under George Whitfield. Now, George Whitfield and John Wesley, as I mentioned earlier, in the sermon, they come from two different schools of theology. George Whitfield would come from more of what we would call reformed or more Calvinistic leanings. 
and that of John Wesley would be more of the free will way of thinking of salvation, being that in the Methodist church, more free will in that regard. And those two, although they had some theological differences, George Whitfield was asked one time if he thought that he would see Wesley in heaven. He says, well, do you think that you will see John Wesley when you reach heaven? Being that he is asking him, do you believe that John Wesley is saved? Do you think that you will see him in heaven? George Whitfield replied in this way. He says, I fear not. I will not see him. For he will be so near the eternal, the eternal throne. And we at such a distance that we shall hardly get sight of Mr. Wesley. And I believe in that moment, just that quote itself teaches something on humility and celebrating, celebrating when people serve the Lord, celebrating when there are ministries that are, that are lifting up Christ, even though they might not be of the same denomination, way of thinking, when there is something good to celebrate, I believe we ought to do that. Humility. The truth of the ages is this, and I'll close. The truth of the ages is this. The first shall be last, whether it's James or John or whoever. And the last shall be first. And it is all for the glory of God. Now maybe you're here today. Maybe you're here today and... And you can't say that you have ever, you have ever been saved or have been ever, ever have had your sins forgiven. Today, the Lord Jesus is calling you into himself. Maybe you're here today and you might say, I need to learn this principle. I, I need to engraft this in my DNA, much like John 3.16 is engrafted in the DNA of the believers and Christ followers, so must this. The question is, can you bear this cup? But also is this, can you live by the truth of the ages, which is humility, and do so for the glory of God? Now the altar is going to be open for those who would like to pray. There is no shame in burying our face before God. There is no shame of walking and praying. And if you would like for me to pray, I certainly will do that with you. I'm going to sing a song here in a moment of invitation called I Surrender All. And that is simply going to be the altar call today. In an altar call, we must understand that it is more than just one coming and saying, I want to be a believer, although we celebrate those moments. It is for the believer to come and just spend a time before God. Now you can do that at your seat, and I hope and pray that you do. I hope and pray that you mean business with God, but I'll simply ask you in leaving, can you bear the cup, and can you serve the way that Jesus outlines it in these few verses? So let's pray together, and then we'll open the altar and sing the song of invitation. Let's pray together.